I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche It's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you be surprised at the info you get Is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science to Hello let them talk and welcome one body to JK Plus One I am not your host, PTF That guy is uh, allegedly in South Florida Looking for the uh, One Direction concert He... <laughs> I guess he thought that uh, he was going to One Direction this weekend at Pegasus, but it was actually uh, One Republic. So from what I heard, he's just still down there looking for the One Direction concert. So I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin, and this is JK Plus One. This is episode 29, although it might not seem like that to you. It's We got to 28. We took a pause. We're back. This is 29, kind of episode one of season two, as it were, but nonetheless... We're back, and we're really looking forward to another year of these kind of inside the actor studio, as it were, uh, with these industry types, trainers, jockeys, owners, horse players. And before we get started, I I have to say that this wouldn't have been possible without our friends from Qatar Racing. Um, Qatar Racing is the largest sponsor in British flat racing. And they've got a heck of a global racing operation, breeding operation. Most of their damage has been done in Europe. Now, Sheikh Fahad has kind of turned his attention to getting more involved here in in U.S. racing. He's got four stallions um, standing in Europe. But now it feels as if he's making a move to kind of get some stallions here in the U.S. and to kind of raise his presence in Qatar Racing's presence here in the United States, and we're looking forward to uh, watching that journey and, and and being partners with Qatar Racing throughout that journey. So want to say thanks again to Qatar Racing and Sheikh Fahad uh, for this partnership opportunity, and we look forward to uh, a year of fun. If you're new and you haven't been here before, the idea is stories. The idea is behind the scenes. It tries to avoid who's the best horse you ever trained, all that stuff. Now, sometimes when you get John Sadler, you have to put him on the spot and ask him if Flightline's the best horse he's ever seen. But it's more, tell me about that one time you did that one thing and it was really funny. We try to find fun stories behind the scenes. If you've seen Cart Talk on the Fox shows, a longer version of that. And... uh we're really looking forward to it. There's a lot of people I'm excited about having throughout this year, but we were very fortunate to get John Sadler for this first episode, reboot, episode 29. Um, John has, has kind of played the flight line thing close to the vest, it felt like, throughout Flightline's career because I found out during this interview or this conversation, he's, he's a lot like a horse player. You know, he doesn't want you to tell him that he's he's a lock in the last race of a pick five. Uh, he doesn't really want you to tell him that he's home at the eighth pole. I think he wanted to get through Flightline's career uh, without jinxing Flightline. And, and now that that career is over, his new career will start, obviously, as a stallion. I think John was a little bit more open. So we're really excited to have John. And uh, it was a fun conversation. Really looking forward to it. I got to share some of my favorites of his uh, that he had trained uh, in, in, in Sydney's Candy and Twirling Candy. So um, without uh, me rambling on any further, 
John Sadler. John, how was your trip to South Florida? It was great. I love Palm Beach. I hadn't spent much time there um, before, and it had the best weather in the United States last week, so it was great. Did you, uh, I'd imagine that uh, when, when Flightline first stepped into your, uh, into your care, there was always the hope that, that his career would end with some trophies, but uh, I got to imagine you never really expected it would turn out to, uh, to what it did turn out to. Well, when you've trained a long time like I have, you don't necessarily know what's going to, you know, what's going to happen. We knew when he came in that he was a shining star and then um, to have it go the way it did, you know, and per perfectly um, was absolutely great. Now, usually when you get a, a big horse like that, just the nature of North American racing, it's, it's, it's the, the, the excitement for the first Saturday in May and, and, uh, and, and then once that kind of, uh, gets eliminated, you kind of dust yourself off and, and, and say, okay, well, let's, let's try to find us, ourselves a, a good older horse. At, at what point did you kind of realize, um, that, you know, that traditional three-year-old year wasn't going to be, uh, in flight lines, uh, future? Well, pretty much it too. You know, when he had the, the big scar on his rump, you know, when he lost all the time down there. You know, he didn't get out to me till I want to say late November of his two-year-old year. So, you know, by the time, and he hadn't had that much training it to because he'd missed so much time. So by the time he got to me, you know, it wasn't really, you know, you're in January or something, you haven't even started, you know. So we knew early on that the, the triple crown was off, you know, was not going to be his plan. So the plan became to, do right by the horse to have him as best he could be and then take it from there. Now, you know, one of the things that, that I kind of wanted to start with is that, you know, your, your career in racing, um, it, it goes back to, to Northern California and um, you, you had some background and when it comes to, to the veterinarian stuff at what point did you kind of realize you wanted to be a horse trainer where where was that in your career well early on you know I started with the show horses when I was in high school and you know and riding after school and and I loved the horses and when my show jumping career I didn't think I could really make a living in it um that's when I kind of morphed over to the to the race horses so you know I've loved horses my whole life and then as my show jumping career kind of wound down, I said, I'm going to concentrate on the racehorses. Um, you know, that's how, that's how that went. And what, what was that transition? How did you kind of get that start? Where did you, you know, like, like many, what did it start, you know, walking hots or what was your Oh yeah, journey? absolutely. I'm a, I'm a classical story. It, it went right from the, when I was in high school, um, I would walk hots in the summer at Del Mar. Um, and then later on, I was given a few horses to groom, and I did that. And that's the hardest job I ever did was grooming horses. Um, it seems like I was slower than all the guys that I was working around with. And um, so I did that job second. Then thirdly, I went to work for a veterinarian, Dr. Jack Robbins, which was the father of, you know, Jay and Tom and Don, um, great California racing family and he was a great vet he was um 
also had a really well-rounded resume. He was a director of the Oak Tree Racing Association. He was, you know, he had every job. So, and he owned horses successfully also. So I got a lot of background from him and I really enjoyed my time with him. He was one of those guys, those older guys that had a dry sense of humor and, you know, always made me laugh. So I really enjoyed working from him. And then after I worked for the bet, I went to be an assistant trainer first for David Hoffman's um, worked for him for a time and really enjoyed that. And then I got the call from Eddie Gregson to um, take some horses to Northern California in um, 1979. And that's actually when I started training. Of all those stops, which one do you kind of feel like was the, was, was the most imperative to your everyday uh, duties now? Was it the, was it the vet work or was it actually, uh, you know, working with the vet with Dr. Robbins or was it, was it the on track stuff and, you know, the condition book and, and, and the kind of the horsemanship of, of trying to get these horses to, to understand their jobs or which, which one of those early parts of your career do you feel like kind of molded you the most where you are now, or is it pretty spread out? Well, it's kind of spread out, but I think Dr. Robbins, you know, because he was such a successful guy, you know, he, even though he wasn't a horse trainer, he'd say to me, he'd say to me, John, if you look at the program and you're more than five to one, you're probably in the wrong race. So right away instilled, you know, um, how you place your horses in relation to um, their best chance of winning races. And he would, um, you know, he says, I get mad when I see a trainer riding down the road with a condition book in their hand, they should have had that done already. So he had a lot of keen observations on the game and we had a really great practice at that time um, or his practice. I was the assistant, the trainers that he worked for, um, you know, were really good and really, um, you know, tremendous horsemen, you know, and he worked for guys like Noble Three Wit. I, I go through it as the barns go through the Santa Anita barn area, Noble Three Wit, Lester Holt, Ron McAnally, Gary Jones, Warren Studi, guys like that are long gone now, like Joe Manzi was a tremendous horseman and um, John Sullivan and uh, who else I want to say in there, Buster Milrick. I mean, these are really classic guys from the late 50s into the 60s and a lot more. Keith, Keith Stuckey had a horse called Ancient Title, which is a big horse around here. And he had a lot of smaller barns also that were, you know, it was an era when the smaller barns could still survive with really smart guys running them. It's funny you say that. Uh, part of the way I do these podcasts is I try to ask some questions to people around the subject. That way they can kind of set me up to, to, to get some fun stories, interesting stories, some, some uh, off the beaten path type things. And, and friend of yours and colleague David Engordo actually had a quote that fits right kind of what you were saying. He said, Sadler loves all the old time guys. He's a bridge in a lot of ways from that bygone era of trainers where horse, when trainers were horsemen, and had some class. What, what do you, what do you, what do you feel like you meant by, uh, by that, by that comment? Well, you know, those, you know, some of the stories are lost to political correctness over, over time, which they probably should be, but those guys, um, you know, it was about like when they put a horse in, you know, they, they really knew what they were doing, you know, and they, 
you know, there was a lot of them were kind of, you know, flawed characters in that era. Maybe they drank too much or maybe they smoked too much. But by God, they were all really good, good horse trainers, good caretakers. They loved their stock. Um, and, you know, they, they just knew what they were doing. You know, even if they had lesser horses, you know, they knew they always had a plan. It was mapped out. I mean, my first day working for Jack Robbins, this is one of my favorite stories is um, we pulled up outside Buster Milrook's barn and he says, go in and see if, introduce yourself, see what Buster Milrook needs. So I got out of the car and I walked into his office and this dog just lunged at me. I mean, and I flew out of that office and, um, you know, ran back into the road. Well, the dog was on a kind of a long leash, so he's never going to bite me. But they thought that was so funny just to terrify me you know, Buster Milrick and, and Jack Robbins. And, you know, they, they teased me about that for about, you know, a good four or five years. You know, John, we never saw anybody come out of that office that fast. This dog was mean. Her name was Buttermilk. Um, but there was nothing so milkish about her. But she knew that was, she was just very territorial on his office. So they thought that was funny. And in retrospect, it really was funny. John, you, you've uh, you obviously love the horses, and you've you've dedicated a, a life and a career to that. But I've also heard that you're you're pretty high on dogs. You, you've got uh, you've got a nice little gang of dogs of your own, uh, and 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 the number was was kind of up for debate when we were asking around. Yeah, it's actually up to five right now. So we ha we have a lot of dogs at home. Um, it's a great. We have a big property. We have about kind of up in the foothill there, I would say we got about it, maybe a little over an acre. So um, we got some great dogs, no question about that. They're a big part of, of my life. And, um, you know, we enjoy having them. What, what kind of dogs do you have? Do you... Well, we got a, a Jack a Jack Russell that Jane Lyons gave me um, that came home after the Breeders' Cup. Because the story goes, David's dog, um, Rupert was supposed to come to me in California and then COVID hit and literally, you know, there was no way to get him out here. So the Rupert stayed with David and over time, you know, I could tell after he'd had him two, three weeks, I mean, that he, you know, they'd already bonded. And so um, he stayed back there. So this was our dog Checo um, is it from the same breeding lines as David's dog Rupert. So we have one of those. We also have a, a French bulldog. We have a beagle. We have one, um, God knows what it is. <laughs> and there's a chihuahua that somebody, um, gave to us that, um, you know, end up staying. We, we have a French bulldog and it seems anytime I talk to French bulldog owners, these little suckers all have the same little quirks, same little personalities. Well, um, I would say tremendously needy, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. He, he's just, <laughs> you can't eat a meal without feeling guilty. He just stares at you and we don't even really feed him people food, but he still stares at us as if we're depriving him of an opportunity to eat. Yeah. Um, same experience here. They're, they're, um, they're really, you know, really that way. <laughs> sweet little guys. Um, David also said that, that, that he didn't think, he doesn't think you would have made it through Breeders' Cup week without Rupert. He said he was your emotional support dog throughout that uh, entire time. That was great. I mean, he was out every day. David was coming out, you know, he wanted to be there 
for kind of the history march, um, you know, the, the last, you know, what ended up being his last race. So that dog was out every day and, and, you know, he would come into my office and that dog would jump in my lap and be so loving. It was really great. And I didn't know, um, Jack Russell must have a pretty good, pretty good stomach because he got plenty of Starbucks banana nut bread. I said, it's okay if I give him this much. And oh, don't worry about it. Nothing bothers him. So it was banana, banana nut bread from Starbucks, usually from the day before, because you know, people would come in and bring us some Starbucks stuff, and inevitably the next day there would be some leftovers. So that dog um loved that banana nut bread. And and um, you know, it's cold there in Kentucky. You get inside the office and um hang out a little bit. How was that week for you? Was it, was it a stressful week? I mean, obviously, you know, you, you had, you had, you had let him over there flight line. That is, you know, a handful of times prior to that. So you knew what he was, you, you knew that he was a special horse that, uh, that week I kept saying emphatically, if he breaks, he wins. If, if he breaks, he wins. There's no scenario from a racing standpoint that I felt like was going to get him beat. Did you have that type of confidence or were you a nervous wreck of, of, of just trying to keep them together because you know how quickly things can go wrong? Well, I mean, I felt the same way, you know, his numbers were so much faster than everybody in the field that if he ran his race or he didn't run quite his best race, you know, it'd still be, be plenty, plenty good. You know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a calmness to being um, one to five to a degree because, you know, you, it can cover up for a little bit of sins. Um, but that being said, you know, horses are a day-to-day proposition, you know. Anything can go wrong. Anything can happen. Um, you know, they, so it, it's just, it was quite stressful for me, Um you know, so I pretty much was just training the horse. I skip a lot of the, you know, I did, we were there actually two weeks. So the first week I kind of did some of our um, social stuff and went out to dinner and this and that. And then I just really kind of buttoned down the last week um, just to make sure that, you know, I was right next to that horse. And I've often said, you know, over the last two years, you know, I wanted to be there to walk right next to him, you know, so I experienced it all. Not that it was, not that I was, you know, over henpecking, but I wanted to, you know, when you're going through history, you, you, you want to be present. And that's what I tried to do um, with him. Uh, of his six career races, was the classic, the race that you found yourself kind of the most nervous for, or at that point, did did he show you so much on the racetrack that, that possibly it didn't rank as high as some of your most nervous moments uh, leading up to any of his six races? I, well, I think my most nervous moments were leading up to Pacific classic because, you know, I felt he was so good um, at Del Mar and training so well. I mean, it was just like, um, I can tell you a couple little things now that never been told before like two days before the Pacific classic, somebody on the track fell off right in front of him, like 20 yards away. You know, here comes this horse barreling towards flight line and Juan's able to avoid him, you know, or 
the day before the Pacific Classic, I think I heard um, Flightline kick the wall a little bit and the whole barn shook, you know, I mean, can you imagine, look, think about like surfing one of those monster waves and what a good job Juan Leva did, you know, riding them on a daily basis. You're like, you're riding an 80 foot wave, you know, you have that much power, that much strength, but um, you can't out, you can't out physical it. You've just got to out finesse it. So April 24th, when he debuted, um, he was obviously, you know, he was odds on, he was sensational that day. And then he came back in the allowance race at Del Mar in, in September at, at that point, you know, cause you know, I, people hear, Oh, the, the horse had some issues. So he had to stop it. But you know, obviously a lot of that stuff can get blown out of proportion after that September race. Was there a target outside of the Malibu or did you just kind of realize at that point, let's just kind of shut him down here and let's look to the Malibu. Was there any thoughts of trying to be ambitious in any ways with the Breeders' Cup or? Yeah, yeah, there was. I mean, you know, the, the, the we had two choices after his second race. And um, that was either run him in the Breeders' Cup sprint because I felt like, you know, with two races, he wasn't really quite ready to stretch out. Wasn't the time. So do you run in the Breeders' Cup sprint um, or do you wait for the Malibu? And I thought off of two races and knowing how, if you look at the sheets and see how fast he runs, you know, the sheets scream a little bit. Don't crowd this horse too soon because these are historic type numbers or even early on. So I made the decision to bypass the Breeders' Cup, probably cost him an Eclipse Award, you know, at three as the best sprinter. And um, I said, you know what, we'll win the Breeders' Cup next year. So it was a conscious decision to skip the Breeders' Cup sprint. You wait for the Malibu, which, you know, is a fabulous race here at Santa Anita. And I, I say that the Malibu, to me, counts as one of his 2023 20, races. It's three days. It's the start of our calendar in California for the, for the 20, you know, it's J December 26th. So I said, it's against your own group. It's right here. It's a nice stretch out, you know, at seven eights. And um, that looks like a perfect spot. So we decided to wait for the Malibu and then you saw the Malibu. Yeah. He's outstanding. And, and, and I'm a, I agree. Um, I think the Malibu is, it's, it's always seems to be one of my favorite races of the year. A little bit later in this conversation, we'll talk about one of your Malibu winners that I loved and it was a very funny story, but I want to finish here with flight line. Did you, so after the Malibu then was, was the Met mile kind of the next, target or were you looking to try to get something in between there yeah we were looking to run probably in the triple bend here but um he had a workout after the malibu he had like two works and then he come up a little sore in his right hind leg and that's when we diagnosed it as a little um, bone bruising in his right hind hock so it took the triple bend out of out of play now it wasn't horrible um but he wasn't going to be able to run in that race so when we missed that one, or there's also a race at Oakland we could have gone over there for too. But anyway, when we missed that one, then we said, you know, the next important race is the, the Met Mile. And when we started the year, the Met Mile was always right up there because, you know, you have a, a brilliantly fast horse. The reputation in New York is for the Met Mile is a stallion race. It's a one-turn mile. Um, you know, it just looked really like a nice spot for him. So once we missed the, the middle race, then the focus was on New York. 
Now, I thought that was one of his best performances in the Met Mile. Just, you know, Flavian had a little bit of adversity there, right? You know, they felt like he got shuffled from the inside. That's why I hate drawing the rail. I don't care what kind of animal it is. It just, things can go wrong out there that don't typically go wrong when you're three wide. I'd rather be three wide and lose a step than, than what happened there. Was that a, a pretty anxious moment for you? Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was it was a scary moment, you know. In his first couple races, he'd been, you know, he's such a bull. We did a little, I think in, in hindsight, criticizing myself, I did too much schooling in the gate, you know. So we schooled him in the gate quite a bit at Santa Anita because you want him to be good in the gate when they go out of town. And then the day before the race, I stood him in the gate at, at Belmont Park and um, he schooled beautifully. But turns out I kind of overdid it. So when they opened the gate for the Met Mile, he just kind of stood there. Um, and broke poorly. And then he's so fast when Flavian kind of smooched him to get back up in position, he ran himself right up into trouble. And I think he's checked him once or twice. And then finally, you know, Flavian took him to the outside and then it's all over. Um, but that was definitely the, the race that he had the most trouble in. And, um, you know, a lot of horses couldn't overcome what he overcame that day and a, and a very sharp horse at that, at that time in speaker's corner, you know, who's a very, was a very good horse and, you know, maybe was never quite the same after that. Selfishly, I, as a, as a person who spends, you know, 40 days in Saratoga in the summer, I was hoping and praying that there is a possibility that you would bring him to the Whitney um, was it ever really a conversation or did you always kind of know for sure you were going to keep them there for the mile and a quarter of the Pacific classes? Yeah. Well, this is what I, this is, you know, what I don't know, you know, for that horse, he gets a little bit amped up when he, when he was flying. So to go back to the Whitney, then we'd had to fly back to California and then fly back for the breeders cup. So he was going to have to fly three times. I said, you know, he's went to New York once. He'll go back to Kentucky. So he'll have two flights. So it's just more about how many times you're going to put him on a plane. So um, there was some discussion of the Whitney. And I said, no, well, you know, I'm not worried about the Whitney because, you know, if those horses run well in the Whitney, we'll run against him in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Let's take one at home. He loves Del Mar. He just adored that track. Might have been his favorite surface. And uh, take the Pacific Classic. That's the biggest race on our calendar. Great race in the summer. And then we'll see those horses in New York again in Kentucky. Indulge me a little bit just for fun. What, what, would, what are some of the spots, if we would have been fortunate enough to see him this year, that you would have liked to have, ch have taken on with him? Some some of the, the kind of wishful thoughts of, of things you would have wanted to do with him if he wasn't worth $200 million and is a stallion now. Well, I mean, you know, we would have liked to have squeezed another race in there, you know, um, you know, whether it was a triple bend or, or just any of the other big races, we'd have liked to maybe, you know, had another one, but you know, the, you know, what did Alan Iverson say? It's just practice. I mean, <laughs> Flight line, you know, it would have been for our, it would have been for our, your enjoyment, my enjoyment, the fans' enjoyment. But flight line never needed one race to get ready for the another, really, if you know what I'm saying. Right. You know, you could take him over there 
on the biggest stage on the biggest days. And, um, you know, there's never, a, I was never worried, always oh, not ready or, you know, I wish I could have run him once more to get him ready for this race. For me, it was always about having him at his best when he went over there because he was going to be good enough. Um, there's no question about that. So I would have liked to have had another race. Um, but it's, you know, every horse has a different journey, you know, and we were doing what was right for flight line. And um, obviously, you know, the numbers he ran were so historic. Um, you wanted to be mindful of how many races you get in there. You've seen some great ones. And, uh, you know, if someone asked me who the, the most beautiful baby I've ever seen was, I would say it's my son. It's obvious. But yeah, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, is, is he the greatest horse you've ever seen? Well, I mean, there's so many great horses in history. You know, they get mad if you say things like that, you know, the social media or whatever. But, I mean, to me, he his ability, his brilliance is right up there with with any horses we've ever seen. Um, I thought that maybe the best, you know, the best Malibu prior to um, flight line was spectacular bid, you know, and I happened to be here that year that um, he was running here. So I've seen all the greats um, run. And um, to me, you know, we'll say, Oh, he didn't run enough or this or that, but just on, you know, brilliance and ability, he's right up there. You mentioned um, when we were talking about flight line, you, you mentioned your, your assistant Juan Leva, who from my, what I understand, Juan and Flavian were the only two people since he was with you to ever sit on his back. But it, it also set, sets me up to kind of talk a little bit about some information I gathered about how important your staff is to you. So before we get to Juan and Flavian, I do want to talk a little bit about um, Caesar and Renee, who uh, you've been with you for quite some time. Uh, what do they mean to the operation flight line success, your success? Well, you know, I have, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, I think I'm up there with the leaders of, of guys that have long-term employees. Um, you know, Adolfo Correa, who is his groom, he's been with me for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Renee Quinteros, who's one of my foremans, and Cesar Aguilar, who's the other one, have been with me, you know, 25, I mean, 30 years. I mean, I have a lot of long-term people. Um, so I'm just blessed to have them, you know, um, they're just great horsemen and, and they've been with me a long time. So, uh, I don't, I don't even know how to, you know, it either means I'm a good boss or whatever, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I have a, you know, some, you know, but, you know, I think being a, being a, being the boss, you got to be consistent, you know, you know, with horses, what needs to be done. Um, it's not a job for the weak, weak hearted or, or people that don't want to work, but if you work and you're treated consistently, um, you know, what people like to know what's expected of them. And, um, I love all my employees because, you know, you spend more time with them than you do your own family you know, it's six days, seven days, mostly a week. So, um, you know, you want to, um, you get along with the people you work with and I'm blessed, you know, I just have some wonderful, wonderful grooms and hot walkers and riders, um, they've been with me a long time. So, um, you know, I, 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 you, I can't throw enough roses on, on the people that work on the backside. 
and not just me. I'm talking about the industry wide. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's 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 this game simply doesn't operate without those hardworking men and women. It is, doesn't. Um, I I heard that Renee kind of did something a little interesting with Flightline. He he his days were a little bit longer when Flightline was in the barn. He he would get there a little bit early because Flightline had some habits that he liked. Well, absolutely. You know, we we started we originally with Flightline we take them out at, at um, four o'clock and walk them a little bit, about 20, 20, 30 minutes before he went to the track in the first set. And then a couple of days, you know, he was jumping around so much at four. I said, let's take him out a little bit earlier, you know, so um, he doesn't kick the walls. Cause he had a tendency to kick the walls when he was in at the track, we had special pads made. Uh, can you imagine kind of the pads going up halfway above the wall and then one time we saw a hoof mark above the pad. So we had another set. So he was in a padded stall top to bottom um, <laughs> for his whole career. And it wasn't because he was a bad horse. He just had a lot of energy, you know. And if, you know, he could hear a, a garbage can drop three barns away and his ears would go up. So Renee would actually take him out at, at 345. And he'd walk him some, and then he'd just let him, Jay, I think Jay Hubday termed it, you know, stare at the stars. That's where he started to learn to pose. He would just get outside and, um, you know, um, look at the moon a little bit and get him nice and calm before he went out. We took him out in the first set because I usually view in California on my surface, you know, the track is in its very best um, early. It's got a lot of moisture in it. It hasn't been gone over. So he would go out usually in the first set, except when it, when he was working, you'd take him out later because you wanted to see him in the light. Uh, but otherwise, he'd go early. So he loved a routine. I think horses like routine, and that was his routine. Was there any science to uh, the consistency with Juan, your, your assistant Juan Leva? Well, Juan Leva, um, he's just – a great assistant. He's really invigorated my career. Um, and he's a beautiful, you know, rider. He's, if he's not the best in the country, he's one of them. I mean, he can gallop a tough horse. He can work a horse perfectly. He can really do anything on a horse um, that you want. And he rode this horse, which is not an easy horse to ride, especially early on, or even at the end, because he was so strong. He rode him to perfection every single time. And I want to tell a couple stories on Juan that I like. To me, Juan is like Phil Jackson. Had a good, solid career riding. Phil Jackson had a nice career in the pros, but, but are going to be, he's, Juan's going to be a better coach than he was a, a player, as we say, you know, because you have to uh, develop your other skills, you know, and he was like that. Um. And, you know, unfortunately, he beat me in the Breeders' Cup one year. I had Switch and he had Musical Romance. He came up the rail, knew the, and Rosario came wide on Switch. And um, I've often said, you know, that I had to get Juan back so I could punish him for beating me in the Breeders' Cup that day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he rode a really good race that day. And, you know, how much grief would have that have saved me if um, I'd have won one a little earlier in my career? Because remember, I went through that period 
John can't win a Breeders' Cup, you know. I mean, I had to hear that ad nauseum. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do remember that actually. I was, I actually kind of tried to look it up. I remember there was this thing that John John Sadler couldn't ship. Yeah, and 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 we'll talk about my love for Sydney's candy. And I remember when I would talk about Sydney's candy, people were like, "Well, John Sadler can't ship. He can't ship. He can't ship." Do you feel like that was just a luck thing do you feel like you had to adjust some things do you think it was just luck of the draw what, what were your thoughts when that was kind of happening well when that's kind of happening you know a lot of times what would happen to me in the breeders cup or even shipping is you might have the best horse in california you win a lot you know but i mean i think every time you know some of those breeders cup races i mean i think i was third every time gold of cova ran you know so i would come from california with a nice horse but I wouldn't end up beating, you know, Cricket Head or somebody like that, you know, with a great European champion. So, um, you know, and then a lot, I think over the years, what I, we adjust a little bit is we started to ship out a little bit less often, you know, um, because, you know, it doesn't really make too much sense to go unless you're really, you want to go, you want to be the favorite. So I think I've been a little more selective as the years have gone by. Um, but a lot of time I had good horses, you go and you, the owners want to go and you want to, you can say, Oh, I don't want in the breed, want to run in the breeders cup. Cause I'm 12 to one, you know, you know, you've gotten that far. You're going to go give it a shot and see what happens. When, when you made the decision, uh, on flight line, um, with, with Flavian Pratt, was it always a decision? Was there any kind of behind the scenes? Cause I do know that for a long time and it feels like thinking about your big horses there was a lot of joel rosario mixed into there as well was joel ever in contention here was it a, was it flavian from the start how did that all come about well rosario when he was here in california wrote a lot a lot of winners for me so uh but he's already been gone you know what five or six years to the east coast so flavian was clearly the the top rider in Southern California about the time flight line was going to run. So as we're training flight line, getting him ready for his first race, we know what a great horse he is. I said, you know, we want to have the best rider here uh, on him. And that was clearly Flavian Pratt. You know, he was dominating here um, before, um, before his first race. So it just made sense. You know, he, you couldn't have really gotten Rosario to fly out to ride up. Well, maybe I could have, you know, but I mean, it made, it made sense for Flavian to, um, to ride him first time. So I, w I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your, your past horses. Um, and, and the one that I want to start with, which is like, I, like I had kind of given you a little bit of hint on was Sydney's candy is one of my favorite horses. And, I, and I'm not really sure why I, 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 I guess I just kind of, actually, I do remember I was in Las Vegas and he, it was right before the San Vicente, and he was on the cover of the DRF. And I was kind of a neophyte player at the time, and I just remember being like, if they put this horse on the cover, he must be pretty good. <laughs> Which, if only now, that was how I made my decisions uh, in wagering. Um, and, I, and I remember my friend and I, Robert, were, were just kind of fell in love with the horse and kind of started following him. And, and, and we, we got into some real estate investment in Austin, Texas, and we, we made it, we bought an apartment complex, we renovated it, and we changed the name to the Sydney after Sydney's Candy. He was your first Sydney to Derby that's winner. That's a great little bit of history there oh. that I know. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It, it's, it's, it was, uh, uh, they changed it, we sold it, they changed it back. We were very upset when they did that. 
but uh, yeah, we, we called to Sydney and, and uh, we, we went to that Derby that year and uh, he, he was just one of our, one of our favorite horses. And then when he, when he, you know, he moved to the grass, we were huge fans. And, and, and I think he was one of the third you were mentioning uh, to Goldacova. And uh, he, he was a, uh, he was a fun, fun horse. He really was a really nice horse. You know, I got like that year, I got like four or five horses from Jenny Craig. And this is, you know, that those horses, which were twirling candy and Sydney's candy, you know, were the really kind of the invection point for candy ride, you know, candy ride started off a little bit under the radar. um, And I got these two big Colts in. I said, both of these are nice. And, um, Sydney's candy was a, was a top level horse, really good. Um, and we won a lot of good races with him. And I just thought he was tremendous. You know, he, he got a little bit um, unlucky when he won the Santa Anita Derby, you know, that was um, synthetic that year, you know, so maybe he didn't transition that well back to the dirt that quickly, you know, for the Kentucky Derby. Um, but he was a good horse. He could win on any surface. He had a race down there. I think it was the La Jolla Del Bar where, um, you know, Baffert put a Martin Garcia on there and give him the suicide instructions, you know, make sure you run Sydney's candy out. And I don't know how fast he went the half that day, but he brushed that horse and kept going. So, Oh yeah. He was, he, when they, he was 13 links clear when they turned for home. And, yeah. and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, I think I could be wrong about this. I think, think and i should have checked i think you got the trevor denman they would need to sprout wings to catch sydney's king i i'm i'm pretty sure that you got that call too when he turned for home which is always exciting i can imagine for a trainer to get that call from uh from trevor yeah that's a that's a that's a good call so i mean he was just a really good horse and uh you know we enjoyed the heck out of him um and you know like i said i had two great ones in that crop with with twirling candy also yeah, he, he was he uh, he was one of my favorites as well. He he was kind of a head case. Is that right? Wasn't he kind of a little bit of a, a tough one? Totally, totally. You know, the first time we worked him, he went down into the turn, lugged out, and pulled himself up. And then the second time we worked him, he did the exact same thing. So the third time we put him in company, and uh, he outworked the company easily. Went like a star. And then for the next during his career. He had to work in company every single time um, because he wouldn't work by himself. He needed to go with another horse. So, you know, over time, it was um, very, very trying. I said, you know, he's wearing these horses out that are working with him. And so we actually claimed a horse called Hammurabi. And I claimed him for Jenny Craig just to be the workhorse with with, um, Twirling Candy. So he would work with him and then, you know, I, I wouldn't run him because I needed to make sure that his main job was to work with Twirling Candy. So Twirling Candy had a tremendous amount of ability and, and um, but he needed company all the time. I was in Grand Island, Nebraska. Uh, my ex-in-laws live there. I was in a Texas roadhouse bathroom watching on my phone twirling candy win the malibu i was at dinner with my in-laws 
I didn't want to be the, you know, I mean, now I wouldn't care, but I didn't back then. I didn't want to be on my phone watching a race at dinner with my in-law. So I went to the West restroom doing air quotes here, went to the restroom and watched twirling candies, uh, Malibu, uh, from a, from a Texas roadhouse bathroom in, uh, in Grand Island, Nebraska. Yeah. And that was a tremendous race. And, and I think he still has, still has a track record at seven eights at Santa Anita. The track was, a, we'd had a week of rain. We'd run more, a little bit more in that era back on a, on a kind of semi-sealed track or something like that. But um, he was really a talented racehorse. Joel said that, you know, he never felt like the horse gave him a hundred percent, you know, because um, he was just that kind of horse, but he had so much ability. Um, it was unbelievable. Victory uh, encounter was your first grade one. Uh, what do you remember about that one? Oh, I was a really, uh, as a filly, I claimed um, she ran a 13 on the sheets the first time she came back for 32. So she looked like she was well worth the money. Um, I claimed her and, you know, for a really good guy, his name was Tom Mankiewicz and he's kind of, he was a Mankiewicz son of Joseph Mankiewicz that um, directed Cleopatra and you still see a Mankiewicz on T Turner classic movies. He was kind of Hollywood royalty and a good friend of Jerry Moss's and they, you know, they hung out a lot over the years and everything like that. So I think he originally owned a horse with, with Jerry Moss. And he said, I'd like to get a couple on my own. And I got the nod and, and um, claimed him a few horses. And he was a karma guy, Tom Mankiewicz. He was so good. He, he'd say to people, he'd go, um, never looked cheap in front of your trainer then he johnny then he'd whisper me john don't spend more than 40 you know <laughs> he he just had a great sense of humor i think he actually directed dragnet the one with dan Aykroyd in it the spoofy one so he had a lot of sense but he was so good you know he whatever i wanted to do was fine with him and and she won easy um when we started running her and we moved her around and she went up and won a group one and and she was a nice filly. We sold well as a broodmare in the sale. But uh, I remember her mostly for her owner. He was a great guy. And, he, you know, he would say to me something like, John, I'm fine with cheap Chardonnay at the track, you know? I mean, he was just a good guy. You went on to win with another mare, uh, sixth grade ones, with Stellar Wind. Um, I'm, I'm assuming she was one of your Breeders' Cup disappointments that, that got you the unfair – uh, Sadler can't win a Breeders' Cup thing. Um, man, she was pretty special. Uh, oh. Behold her a few times. Yeah, she was great. You know, I got to give David credit on that one. When she came up for sale, David flew up there to Maryland. Going to Maryland in January, I think it was two degrees. And um, he went out to Maryland and looked at her. And uh, I think he said, I like this filly. I said, okay, we'll go ahead and buy her. We bought her. She come into California. She looked like a, a little woolly bear. You know, you come into beautiful California, the weather's 65 or 70. She come out of Maryland. So we clipped the hair off of her and got her, you know, out here in the sun. And she just blossomed. And, um, you know, she was eligible for non-winners of one. But one day I worked her with a horse called Daddy DT, who was actually third in the and the Breeders' Cup as a two-year-old on the turf, she really handled them really nicely. And then she was just a joy to race from from there on out. We had two or three good years with her. Um, you know, she 
got unlucky a little bit. You know, there was a long inquiry at Keeneland when she was second that day. Um, I thought she could have been put up, um, but she was a really good mare. And, and she was, you know, a really big horse for one of your big owners. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about Costa first before we talk about Accelerate. How, how did you meet Costa? Was it just a, a racetrack thing or how, how did he become uh, one of your main owners? Well, Costa lived in, um, in the area and would come to the track with his parents and his brother as, as a young man. And, um, you know, one day he, he said to the usher, he said, I, I think I'd like to get a racehorse. And the usher said, okay, um, this is how these, this is how history's made. I'll introduce you to a good trainer. So this guy, the usher comes up to me and he goes, John, I have a couple guys like to meet you, Costa and Pete Hironis. Could they come over between the fifth and the seventh? I think I had two runners. I said, sure, bring them down. Well, they came down and sat with me for a second, and they were kind of Pasadena guys like me, um, although they weren't living, you know, they moved up to the Central Valley where they have this huge, great business, um, and said, we'd like to get a horse. So I explained to them, you know, for to get started, I said, you know, probably best to claim a horse. Let's see if you like it. You know, if I buy you a young horse, it's not really good because it could be a long time till they run. You don't really get a flavor for it. So to claim a horse early on for young, for owners, I think it's good because they get a feel for it. They get to see if it's a good fit for them. They get to look at some bills and see if they're, you know, if they have the metal to be a racehorse owner. So I claimed them a horse and I think she ran second when we ran her back. And I think I ran her back another time she got reclaimed and I liked them. And, you know, we grew up very slowly, you know, um, with claiming horses in the beginning, then eventually a little bit, the first big horse they have is Lady of Shamrock. Um, it was a private purchase. And so we just kind of built it up and, and they've been great because, you know, they've kind of just reinvested all the money um, back into it and it just grew and grew and grew accelerate you know looking back at his past performances he was he was good he started off good and then he he was always a very useful talented horse and then throughout his long career which is pretty long career for what you know the modern thoroughbred he ended up becoming really good what, what was his journey like um to get him to, to to win that breeders cup classic uh yeah it was kind of a you know he had a he had a couple um you know, setbacks along the way. I mean, as an early horse, he had a curb in his, in his right hind leg and, you know, it kind of flared up, you know, so we got to the races a little later, but I mean, if you, you know, he had this kind of this wonderful, curious career in his first race, he ran against Arrogate at Los Alamitos. Think of that. And neither one of them won. <laughs> Accelerate was second. And I think, um, Arrogate was third and then you know he ran a couple times short then we stretched him out the first time we run him long um you could see his ability and he won easy came back and won a stake at Del Mar after that and then he was kind of just you know he was third as a three-year-old in the in the Breeders' Cup right there with um Gunrunner you know Gunrunner was I believe second and I was third and then you know he went through a four-year-old campaign where 
Some of it went right, didn't always go right. And then in his last year, he was just rock solid, really improved. And, you know, it looked at four like maybe he didn't want a mile and a quarter. Um, but by the time he was five, he, he was good for a mile and a quarter. And, you know, that that's what really made him stand out. John, I made a huge mistake with Accelerate. Well, I, I was playing in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. And I had built my bankroll, if I'm not mistaken, to maybe like 70,000. Wow. And I played doubles with, uh, I'm going to go blank on the Philly's name, the, the, the Judmont Philly that ran the race before you, uh, Enable. I played doubles with Enable into the contenders in the classic, but the, the, the awesome again at Santa Anita, the figure came back really slow. I don't know if you remember that for Accelerate. I do. In the race prior to that, it was yeah. kind of uh, it, it, in the uh, Pacific Classic, it was sort of an outside biased racetrack. So based off of those two performances, I tried to get cute and beat Accelerate, and he was a winner basically every step of the way around there. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, he might have bounced a little bit in the awesome again. You know, he struggled a little bit that day because um, he ran so big. There's an example of a horse that bounced a little bit and still won but he ran such a big race in the Pacific classic. Um, you know, he was, a, you know, not as great in the awesome again, but then he was plenty good to go for the breeders cup classic. And, you know, the thing before going into the breeders cup classic was the draw, the draw, the draw he's way on the outside. Well, if we've learned anything from Churchill in recent years or last 10 years, outside draw is probably good, you know, because you don't get bounced around and, even though he's wide, if you think you have the best horse, um, you don't want to have trouble. And Joel rode him perfectly that day from the outside. A couple other horses of yours that I, I wanted to talk about. You mentioned Switch a little bit earlier. I was looking through her past performances. I mean, she ran into some monsters. She ran into Groupie Doll, Blind Luck, Hob de Grace, Evening Jewel, Zenyatta. But she was so good. She was versatile. She, she, she could run one turn. She was a two turn. Tell me a little bit about Switch. Oh, she was a really nice filly. Um, you know, we really gave Zenyatta a scare that day at Hollywood Park. Uh, I still go back to that race a lot of times of what if, you know. Um, she was very good. She broke her maiden the first time out. She never ran an allowance race again. She ran in stakes. Um, she was that good. Um, very honest. Maybe her last campaign, she started to tail off a little bit. Um, but she was just a good, just a good filly. You know, she had some great wins. Um, she was a little unlucky in the Breeders' Cup. I think I ran her in three straight Breeders' Cups. I think she was second, second, and third. Um, but she was a good mare. We really enjoyed her. You know, we've had good success, you know, selling um, these mares when they're when they're done running. So, um, you know, Stellar Wins sold for $6 million. I think Switch sold for $4 million. Um, this year we sold a million seven with Edgeway. So the model has been to race these mares and then sell them before they go into their breeding career. John, you, you mentioned Edgeway. So forgive me for a little bit of a tangent. I, what was to, with your thinking of spending a little, a little bit more time at Oaklawn than you had in the past? What, because I remember Edgeway was, was one of those horses that, that, that ran at, at Oaklawn. Was it the purses? Uh, was it some of the, 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 the troubles that we know exist in California in terms of some of the field size and, some of the obstacles that, that you guys have out there on an Island. Um, what was with that decision to go spend some time at Oaklawn? I just, I mean, we, I've had nothing but great experiences there. Oaklawn is, you know, they, they have that 
Southern charm there. You know, the people there working there are so gracious. They have good, good racing, good fields. It just made sense to go there. We, a couple of years, we didn't go back last year, this year, I'm getting ready to go to a stake there uh, on February 11th with a filly called stone silent that won a little stake first time out over here last fall. Uh, so we just decided to go over there and give it a try. Um, you know, I love, I, I wouldn't be opposed to sending a division back there again in the future. Um, because, you know, I mean, you, you, one day we went in for the apple blossom, I think, and we rolled down the window and somebody says, Oh, we forgot our parking sticker. The guy looks at us and says, Oh, you just go park next to Mr. Sella's spot over there. I mean, you know, they just really, they get it there in Oakland. I think if you had a track giving courses and racetrack management, customer service, I think Oakland was where you'd take them because uh, they do a really nice job. And then, you know, the purses are obviously good. And you can see that even from last weekend, the California horses run very well there. Um, you know, we're able to go in a lot of times where they might be struggling with weather a little bit with a fit and ready horse, go in and invade and, and do well and come back out. Do you think is is that kind of why you think that that is? Do you think that it is because uh, of the of the weather? Do you think that that kind of has a lot to do with it? I, I've always thought, and I want to see your opinion, especially with with some of the you know the issues that they were having in California, you know, three four years ago. It felt like the racetracks have gotten a little bit deeper. Just hearing other trainers talk, and, and do you think that kind of adds to the fitness when 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 you travel out east? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, because no longer can you say that California is a super fast track. It's not, you know, um, they changed the way they're maintaining the tracks previously in order for safety and what they're doing, they're doing what they think is best. So for, for horse safety. So these horses, when they leave California, they can go anywhere and run. It's not like they're going to deeper surfaces. We're going to faster surfaces, you know, it's kind of a reverse than what it used to be, you know, seven, eight or 10 years ago. Um, so I, I think that's part of it, you know, um, and you see all that. I mean, California ships really well. I mean, I, I saw over the weekend, Mike McCarthy, you know, based here, one in at Gulfstream and obviously Bob Baffert at Oakland. So, um, you know, I, I feel like courses coming out from California really can run on any, any dirt surface in the United States. John, one of the, the funny stories I, I came across getting ready for this was uh, about Valiant Pete. I had never heard this story before. <laughs> and uh, uh, you took on a quarter horse champion with Valiant Pete. How, how did all that come about? Well, I've done, a, you know, a couple of promotions early on in my career. And that one, I, uh, at that time, I really had some dominating sprinters. I had a horse called Valiant Pete. I had a horse called uh, Olympic Prospect. I had another good sprinter, Frost Free. I was, at that time in my career, I was known as a sprint trainer, you know. So, because that's what I was get as a regional trainer. trainer the farms in California would breed for speed. So, I had a lot of fast horses. And Tom Knutes, who's a jockey's agent now, he has um, Maldonado and Espinosa um, came to me and said, I'd like to, there's a really good quarter horse named Griswold. And I think it'd be fun to have a match race at Santa Anita. Do you, um, you want to participate? Because he knew I had two or three really fast horses. And um, I said, sure, why not? 
So it'll be a half mile be run here. And, um, you know, it's a winner take all for a hundred thousand. And, um, you know, it was, it was his concept is just, you know, as a promotion. So, um, I decided to do it and, you know, it was really fun for me as a trainer, the mental challenge to try to do something that you don't do every day. So I put a lot of thought into it and, um, Valiant Pete, his best hits is, is probably a half mile. When he ran in a six and he'd win, he'd be really slowing down at the end, you know, but he was built like a big quarter horse. So he was super fast. So I, when I blew him out for the race, I'd shortened him up on how far he trained and got his speed good and sharp. I, I tr- said, let's let him roll a little bit this last work. He went 32 and four for a three furlong work. You ever heard of that? No, 30, 34s are too fast. Yeah. So he went 32 and four, and this was about a week before. And, you know, it's obviously the fastest. I've never worked a horse. I've never had a horse work faster before or after that, or even tried or whatever. But he was just a quick thoroughbred, but looked quarter horsey. And, um, you know, I said, if we can stay close to the quarter horse, I think we can wear him down. And uh, Julio Garcia, who now is, rides all the work for Wesley Ward, he rode him that day. And we spent a lot of time schooling him in the gate because he was big and aggressive in the gate. And I said, if he breaks good and lap on that horse, he'll, he'll, he can wear him down. And that's what happened. So that was just a lot of fun, you know. It was a fun promotion trying to do something different. Were, were you the favorite that day or was the quarter horse the favorite? Gosh, I can't remember. One was six to five, one was eight to five. I mean, they were like almost. Very close. close. I can't remember quite who got the favoritism at the end. That's so funny. And Uh, the other horse was a dominant horse, 870 horse from Los Alamos. I mean, he'd won everything they had on their long distance races in the quarter horse era. So I I wish we did more stuff like that nowadays. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we get so caught up in, and, 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 you know, jackpot wagers and the, 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 these full field turf races where you got, you know, you got 12 or 16 claim, you got 12, 16 claimers in there. And I feel like it's a great betting product. And I, I, I just, I wish we did stuff like this more. It, it's, it's fun, you know, and it's easier yeah, to digest. I think for some, from a new player, it's easier to digest. Yeah. I think it's fun. You know, I mean, it was, like I said, it was so novel, a quarter horse versus a thoroughbred, you know, at, at that distance and you really need, you know, they had, he was the best quarter horse at the long distances. So um, it was just a fun day, fun concept. And um, it was a great thrill really, you know, because I felt it like tested me to do something I don't do every day. And, you know, I consulted with some guys like Henry Marino that had trained both breeds and, you know, I, you know, little things become so important, you know, you're looking Los Alamitos is a little tighter than Santa Anita. I thought I had the edge there, you know, just, you know, little things that would make the difference. And um, it was good fun. The Bay Area, um, it seems probably had a pretty big impact on your career. Your first win was at Golden Gate. Do do you remember that day specifically? And, and, And how many starters or about how many starters did you have until you got that first win? Not too many. I, I think I might have got it in the first 10, you know. I went up there and and um, the first of all, they gave me zero stalls. I put in a stall letter and they didn't give me any stalls. They didn't know who I was. So 
Eddie Gregson, who was sending me up there with some horses to start, called them and they gave me five stalls. So right in the middle of the barn, you know, nothing was organized. But um, I think I won in the first 10 starts or so. And it turns out that year they had a paramutual strike halfway into it. So a couple of outfits shipped out. And by the time that meet was over, I'd moved into a big barn and I had 20 or 30 horses, you know. So everything just had a way of working itself out a lot of times. Um, you know, and when I was up there and getting started, I, I never turned down a horse to train. Um, so some, I said, you know, that's how that explanation. They say they call it a summer stable, summer here, summer there. Had them in two or three different barns um, until I could get them all together. So um, I had fond memories up there. And it was a paramutual strike. Um, and like I said, a couple guys shipped out. And it was kind of a contentious strike, you know. It was a real unionized, the paramutual clerks um, were out there recording license plate numbers of people that drove past the, the picket line. And there were some bad feelings that lingered afterwards because there were a couple of jockeys agents were paramutual clerks. So, you know, it was, it was kind of a tough week or 10 days when they had that strike going on, but they got it resolved and, and uh, everything went back to normal after that. David and Gordo told me to ask you about the time that his dad took you to the Chinese restaurant by Bay Meadows. Yeah, so I'm up there in 79. David's dad, Jerry and Gordo, had Tom Chapman at the time. He'd gone up there with him. And he said, kiddo, let's go over and eat dinner after the races. So I said, okay. Drove to San Francisco, had dinner and good Chinese food and, and um, getting ready to leave. I said, Jerry, we didn't pay. Says, he said, rule number one, you need some place to go where they won't charge you in case you've had a bad day at the races. <laughs> so his dad, you know, would tell him a couple of horses to bet on the next day. Um, no bill. <laughs> so I always remember that you need one place where you can go in case you in case you lose all your money. It's probably a good good axiom for for race trackers. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things, John, before we wrap up here, one of the things I always like to ask um people that have dedicated their lives to this game and are, have been around it and seen or uh, seen it and basically lived it is, is not that this, that our game is in this trouble that sometimes gets presented by people who want to kind of sensationalize it, but there is some opportunities for growth and there is some areas that we can always improve upon and, and do better and some changes that can be made. What are some of the things that, that, that throughout your experience you felt, are, are areas that we can improve upon some, some changes that you would like to see uh, be made to, to help improve the game or, or, or some things that, that you feel like um, could kind of help us showcase this beautiful game that, that obviously you love. And I love uh, to the masses like a football or a baseball or a basketball. Well, you know, I've been thinking a, a lot about that topic just on my own lately, because having been to the, international awards ceremony in London and, and then the Eclipse Awards last week is, um, you know, we need to come together and move the game forward as a group. So, you know, we spend so much time tearing each other down and tearing the game down. And, but I mean, it's, that's a bigger thing of how everybody views the world now, you know, 
it's everybody attacking everybody. But I think with horse racing, I know what works. Great horses, great big days when there's good horses running. So we need to get back to promoting the positive stuff, you know, not not promoting the the negative stuff. What if they what if they started the Super Bowl with a half an hour special on concussions, you know? I mean, nothing is perfect in life. People are working to make concussions better. We're working to make horse racing better. But I just think we have to um, accentuate what's good and great and tell the stories and see great horses. That's what people like. I, I've never had it, you know, I mean, a lot of times I'll do some talks like this or something, and then there's a question and answer, you know, and <laughs> they, they go, inevitably the question is, who do you like today? What can we bet on, you know? So this is supposed to be fun and exciting to watch. And I, I just think we have to, you know, focus on that more, not that you don't take care of the problems over here, um, you know, but like even with HISA, you know, we, it's, it's got to be implemented. Um, that's the wave of the future. But, you know, let's not club everybody over the head. Let's get consensus, bring everybody together, which is, you know, obviously harder than said. But um, I think that's what needs to happen. And then, uh, you know, individually, I'm a, I grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth. Lone Star Park was my, my first track I ever went to. But I still consider my home track Santa Anita. When I, when I kind of became a, a serious horse player and was playing all the time, I spent as much time at Santa Anita as possible. There's no feeling better than walking onto that apron and seeing the San Gabriel mountains in the background. And it's just watching the sunset after the last, if you hang around long enough, there's nothing better. But well, you, know, it's, you know, I've told people when I'm out there in the morning, sometimes, and I'm getting that feeling that you're seeing there, not a bad office. No, no, not at all. Not at all. But it is, it is obvious that, that because California is on sort of the island. I don't, you know, Maryland, you can get to 17 different racetracks in, in less than an hour. Is there any specific problems that, that you would like to seek some changes to, to kind of help California along that, that maybe some of the people on the East Coast aren't nearly as aware of? Um, that was my other phone. No, you're fine. I think it's, you know, in California, we have. A lot of people work really hard, you know. Um, I think we'll in a couple of years we'll we'll get some help gambling wise, you know, to raise the purses. You know, I think we just need California just needs to work hard on, um, you know, taking care of their product and improving it. And and I don't know specific changes. You know, I think we need uh, another facility. You know, we need Del Mar to be open year round. We really thrived when we had Hollywood Park open in Santa Anita, just because you can really build your barns up, um, plenty of stall space. So I think California is going to do okay. Um, you know, they just have to keep working at it. John, I, I, I know that the requests have been a lot uh, for you this year. I would imagine with having such a special horse and flight line and, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, a couple of days after some travel and, some good travel down to, to pick up some, some trophies and, and uh, from all the horse players and racing fans out there, I want to thank you for everything you've done with flight line. It was a very engaging experience. I think for all of us to, to, to see greatness 
Um, and, and it was, uh, it was a lot of it had to do with, with your care for the horse and, and, and your partners and, and, and the owners. And we, we, uh, want to, want to thank you for your time and thank you for, uh, for this experience with Flightline. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. I'm happy to talk about it now, you know, because even more, I, I think I was a little tight lipped as I was going through it because I'm kind of superstitious, you know, you don't want to be in there saying, you know, this and that. Um, why you don't want to jinx yourself I guess that's the suspicion of of a horse player or a, you know sometimes you don't want to ask somebody what they what they bet on you know because you feel like you're jinxing them um, oh, I completely but, understand yeah so uh, thank you so much and it was my pleasure yeah it's it's the same you don't you don't want to ask someone uh, you don't want to you don't want to do that thing when they turn for home and they're uh, they're up they're up by five you say oh you're a lock no, no, yeah, no, no. Exactly. <laughs> we got an eighth of a mile left. Let's let's yeah. not go there yet. Did you ever hear the joke about the guy that was lost like a hundred straight, and then he he prayed and he said, you know, Jesus, let me um, let me win this one. Well, the horse went into the stretch. The horse was winning by a long way, and then he went right to four letter words. The last eighth, and the guy said, we said, what about you know, what about religion? He says, I'll take it from here. <laughs> anyway that's amazing john i appreciate the time okay take care okay bye-bye bye-bye john thank you so much really appreciate the time um just having that conversation reminded me how awesome Flightline was what a what a talented racehorse uh so much fun to watch um and uh and it also reminded me how much i stink and love sydney's candy and look at those past performances it's like he's some world beater i i just it's one of those deals that when you're first getting involved in the game and you kind of fall in love with that first horse that kind of really captivates your attention. Like that was Sydney's candy for me. Um, looking back on it now as like a, as like a, as a more of a seasoned horse player, you know, you see that he kind of got, you know, like, like John even mentioned, he kind of got lucky getting that, that synthetic ride, you know, synthetic setup in the, in the, in the Santa Anita Derby. And he, 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 the pace wasn't particularly quick. But man, I was still in line betting on him in, this, in the Kentucky Derby, and uh, and uh, he, he was just such a cool horse. And um, anyways, it was fun to talk to John. John, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've had a, a media full year and a, a, and likely coming off a media full weekend uh, with the awards. And I uh, wanted to thank you again for taking the time. Um, I'm glad everyone's back, and and thank you guys for for tuning in. Um, like I said, episode 29, episode one of the second season, we're going to keep rolling. We're going to try to have these out for you every Wednesday. Um, we are going to do a couple of video ones. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some video ones. Uh, I've got one I'm really excited about and I'm just going to let it out of the bag. Now, Angel Cordero, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get Angel on. Um, and I plan to do that one with video cause I'm going to have Angel telling stories. And if you've never sat with Angel for an extended period of time and heard his stories, um, I, I'm really excited to share that with everyone. Um, if you have any guest ideas that get you excited, tweet them at me, uh, guest ideas for JK plus one, anyone that you'd like to hear on here. Um, let's, let's do that. Uh, you can, you can tweet those at UT big hair. Um, also what else? Uh, what was I going to say? There was something else. It was, it was kind of important. Mm, oh, subscribe, share. If you don't mind sharing these, if you, if you liked what you heard, you heard something funny, share them, retweet them. It uh, just gets other people to be able to hear it. We want to get these stories out, get these get these out so that everyone uh, can hear them. So 
Um, usually at the end of the ETH, I do this thing where I like thank everyone, and it's uh, and and I and I try to do it off the top of my head so that there's some suspense on whether or not I forget someone. Um, I guess I'm going to do that again. Um, first of all, and for, for some, uh, and, and and first and foremost, I want to sh- uh, to thank Qatar Racing and Sheikh Fahad for for uh, the support and the partnership opportunity. Um, PTF wherever he's at, our fearless leader. Sure, he's in the Brooklyn bunker looking for listening to One Direction since he was so disappointed that he missed their concert. Uh, Drew Cotney, our business manager and Breeders' Cup betting challenge champion, a title that uh, I don't have. And uh, thanks to Marshall Graham and Matt Miller. Um, I want to thank uh, all the other people on the network Spencer, Nick Luck, Acacia, Maggie, Matt Bernier. Um, who else? Billy and, and Michelle. Uh, I'm going to have to get better at this. Whatever, it's fine. I think I got all the big ones. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I did. Anyways, I'm so glad you guys came back for uh, episode 29, episode 30 next week. I don't know who yet. I guess you're probably trying to figure that out. And uh, if you're participating in any paramutual wagers, I wish you the best of luck. I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk.